Welcome to the Hive Poetry Collective on KSQD 90.7 FM, Santa Cruz. I'm your host, Julie Murphy, and today we're joined by fellow Hive Poetry Collective member, Deanna O'Reilly. Hi. Thanks for having me, Julie. Oh, it's great to do a show with you. It's been a while since we've done one together. Today, we're going to be talking with Kim Scheiblauer about her forthcoming book of poems, The Visitant. When we scheduled this episode, we thought the book would be in print, but as so many things during the pandemic, it's been delayed. But Deanna and I have had the great fortune of getting a sneak peek into the uh, galleys, and uh, we're going to be in for a real treat when this book comes out. Kim Scheiblauer lives in the first rise of the Soquel foothills, overlooking trees and a slanted field. Here she runs her business and writes poetry. She has read often for celebration of the muse, published here and there, including British Columbia, where she was once paid in smoked salmon. She last appeared in the anthology, California Fire and Water, edited by Molly Fisk. Her book, The Visitant, published by Hummingbird Press, has been a long labor, is now in transition to the printer. She resides with her understanding husband, Steve. Welcome, Kim. It's great to have you. Oh, thanks, Julie. I want to say Happy New Year. Yeah, Happy New also, Year. Also, how glad I am to be here and kick the new year off. It could only be better. Truer words have not been spoken. <laughs> um, and it's going to be really great when your book comes out. And listeners, we will keep you posted on uh, the High Poetry Collective Facebook page and put up a note when the book is out, maybe February with a book launch in March. Right. That's kind of what we're looking at right now. Excellent. Everyone keep your fingers crossed. <laughs> Please. Um, also, uh, listeners, just to note, we are all sheltering in place in various parts of rural Santa Cruz County. So if we sound like we're underwater from time to time, it's the Zoom recording. We have not, you know, gone to another planet or <laughs> crossed our wires. We're just doing the best we can. So please bear with us. And um, hopefully we won't have any interruptions. Well, we thought we'd start the show, Kim. You brought in one of your favorite poems to read. Maybe we could start with that. Okay, I'm happy to read this. Um, I'm not sure why I picked this. I think it's my current crush, actually. Uh, it's by the Irish poet, the late poet, Yvonne Boland. And I'll just uh, dive in. It's called Once. The lovers in an Irish story never had good fortune. They fled the king's anger. They lay on the forest floor. They kissed at the edge of death. 
Did you know our suburb was a forest? Our roof was a home for thrushes. Our front door was a wild shadow of spruce. Our faces edged in mountain freshness. We took our milk in where the wide apart prints of the wild and never seen creatures were set who have long since died out. I do not want us to be immortal or unlucky to listen for our own death in the distance. Take my hand, stand by the window. I want to show you what is hidden in this ordinary aging human love is there still and will be until an inland coast so densely wooded, not even the ocean fog could enter it, appears in front of us and the chilled to the bone light clears and shows us Irish wolves, a silvery man and wife, yellow-eyed, edged in dateless moonlight. They are mated for life. They are legendary. They are safe. Thank you. That was a love poem, wasn't it, Kim? You chose a love poem. I chose a love poem and, um, you know, an older couple as well. And what I loved about it is how she intertwines Irish myth uh, with a current contemporary couple. And I also felt kind of this um, overlay, you know, contemporary light, uh, contemporary life rather, uh, kind of palimpsest over the ancient, um, the ancient landscape, the old legends, the old myths. I think that's kind of summed up in the line, did you know our suburb was a forest? Because that could mean it used to be a forest, or it was a forest right at that moment. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's a real, I, I'm sorry. I, I just wanted to add that there's a real blurring of time. Yeah. I, I love how the poem is titled once. And then in the first line, she goes right to never. The lovers in an Irish story never mm -hmm. had good fortune. Mm -hmm. And then later she comes into until. So the whole poem is playing with the wrapping around of, of time. It's really lovely. Yeah, and I think it makes us think too, uh, where are we right now? What are we on right now? You know, what mm -hmm. are the layers that we live on? You know, the Irish people have been there forever. Here in California, there were people before us. Yeah. Yeah, so it, it, it evokes that. I also like how the poem plays with that myth versus human life, mm -hmm. yeah. right? And, you know, it opens with the, you know, the lovers in an Irish story never had good fortune. And then she has these other pairs of uh, other pairings she's playing with where I do not want us to be immortal or unlucky. I want to show you what is hidden. 
And yet at the end of the poem, it's like they have become immortal. They're legendary. And so surprising, they're safe. That's such a surprising last phrase of the poem. We don't, we don't expect it. It's like they become animals in the forest. Yeah. yeah. And I just love that Irish wolf and the silvered haired couple, a silvery man and wife. Yellow, yellow eyed. eyed. I know there's a lot here. So I, came, I came to Poland late and I just always find her, um, you know, worth going back more than once. I, I was really taken with the form too. I have to say, if you look at it, it's tercets, four quatrains, but look at the beginning of the poem, just these declarative sentences, nothing running on until kind of starts getting ravelry towards the end relaxes the sentences in fact I thought wow I was mad to pick this (laughs) these sentences are crazy (laughs) well she also does that shift in the kind of in the the middle of the poem she there's a change in the diction where she goes from all these declarative sentences to the imperative take my hand stand Mm -hmm. by the window and then the poem really changes after that that's right it's a really interesting hinge great little poem I really love the way it begins with a kind of a startling declaration and a real sense of certitude that you don't want to challenge, although I don't know if it's true. The lovers in an Irish story never had good fortune. I mean, it's not the kind of line you expect a poem to begin with, but more like a thesis for an essay. Yeah. It has these wonderful poetic examples. They fled the king's anger. They lay on the forest floor. They kissed at the edge of death. They kissed at the edge of death. Yeah. <laughs> question. Did well, you probably, know? Probably, <laughs> there's a real turn. Yeah. Well, and the stakes are high right from the beginning. We've got death right in that first tercet. Mm-hmm. There's yeah. a lot in this poem. I think it was a good one to choose. It's got so much depth. Yeah, I think it's also, Kim, a great introduction to your work because, you know, Bolin, as one of the foremost uh, female voices in Irish literature, she was one of the first to bring in woman's story, domestic issues, feminist issues, um, myth and love and history. And in reading your new book, The Visitant, all of those themes are in your work. Yes, it's pretty obvious why I was drawn to it. You know, I remember the first time I went to Dublin, um, I went to the Writers Museum and you know what? It was filled with men. It was all male writers. Yeah. Usual suspects, you know, Joyce and so forth, um, Yates. And I said, where are your women writers? Nicely, I said. Nicely. (laughs) And... um, there's been a real blossoming in contemporary Ireland with the female writer. Yeah. And Boland really led it. You know, yeah, she, I, she, she talks about being uh, very inspired by American female poets. So. Yeah. And she's because of the Catholicism there, they're um, kind of a patriarchal tradition of Catholicism. Maybe. I haven't really delved into it. 
We don't want to be accusatory though, but something <laughs> to think about. <laughs> no, well, but she, she has written a, a lot. I believe she's written about how, how women are portrayed in literature mm-hmm. and in life and in society. And that's the subject of many of her poems. That's right. And you know, her obituaries were filled with um, gratitude from the younger Irish uh, female poets because she was somebody who helped people up the ladder. And of course she taught at Stanford. Yeah. And that's, that's an encourager. Absolutely. So yes, I, I love her mingling of myth. And um, when I decided to, well, I kind of went on a quest to discover my grandmother's heritage. And I thought, hey, <laughs> why not write something, you know, from the, well, the Welsh mythology? And um, that turned out to be a little bit more than I bargained for. Well, we're listening to Kim Scheiblauer on the Hive Poetry Collective. You're here with me, Julie Murphy. I'm your host and our Hive member guest, Dion O'Reilly. And we're here <laughs> celebrating and uh, enjoying Kim's stories and poems from her new forthcoming book, The Visitant. The Visitant. That's a lovely title, uh, Kim. Where did you... Think of how did you think of that title? Oh, how did I think of it? Well, you know, it was kind of who was haunting who. I've been to Wales twice. I had another trip scheduled uh, for April. Of course, that went sideways. In fact, I was going to do a seminar for a day with Padraig Otuma, and then go on down. And um, it was just what is the word that kind of means uh, the quest I've been on. Hmm a visitor to a foreign country that I found out I had family in, a word that was a little old fashioned since I'm going back in time quite a bit and um, it fit. So this book is really a quest about your roots, a quest to discover these roots, your Welsh roots. I would say so. Um, it's a little bit more complicated. My grandmother came over as a child. She was she was not proud of being from Wales. She didn't want to discuss it. It's not like finding out what your DNA is and then going off to, you know, look at your your uh, disheveled castle or something. I was really trying to figure out why she wanted to keep it so tamped down. And uh, at first, it was something to hang my hat on. And then it did, it turned into a little bit of a pilgrimage, a quest. Um, What I'll read for you next comes out of the Mabinogi. It's a retelling. And for people who don't know, the Mabinogi is um, the legends and myths of ancient Wales that the bards, of course, the poets retold and then finally somebody, probably a monk somewhere, uh, put them in writing. And there's about 10 tales, covers two books. And it was first uh, written down in the mid 1300s. It's so crazy to be an American over there. Their history just stretches back and back and back. So I was just wanted to, to tell a little outline about a Welsh goddess who um, uh, came to be in the stories because the man they married her to was cursed cursed to not marry a human woman, 
but he luckily had two wizard uncles who built him a wife from scratch. And this is her story. Her name is Bladowid, and this is called Becoming Bladowid. Did I ask to be born? At magician's command, tassels that fall from oak shape the espalier of my ribs. Honeydew and sap fused tiny flowers, meadowsweet into a pale body. On sandy pastures and heaths, broom was gathered for bright hair. They desired a blonde. My new husband claimed love at first sight, admired my creamy breasts, and did not try to know me. He left often. I awakened to absence, a cold bed. He loved the early chase, bringing down the stag. He was good at it. Listen, the loneliness when together became worse than when apart. I discovered the shelter of a tree, solace of its river, learned the names of skittering birds, fish that lurked in deepest places. Then a visitor arrived, ardent glances trained on me. Within refuge of enfolding branches, fingertips, mouths made a new reconnaissance. We began with wine, figs, honey, but took no real time with them. His lambent touch made me live. But the hexing uncle's one cursed me into this third shape, punished to forever misday, thirst for moon's stream of light. Owl, just when I learned to be human, I've hungered for his caress, but my hands miss him too. That slow reveal, unlayered from leather, cashmere, to linen, to what is warm, smooth, then murmurs the one bite of fig. Still, would I reverse time if I could change each calamus, quill, feather, to skin or blossom, all is gone. Everyone said wildflowers rule her blood as if I am the malignant thing. Never having possessed magic, what is left to choose? Anticipate night when I truly see. Eyes that miss no scurry. Serrated wings spread wide, plunging with no sound. Not hunted, but huntress. Now all the teeth, fur, bone are mine. Fabulous. That was Kim Scheiblauer reading her poem, Blood Dubweth, from her new collection, The Visitant, on Pahai Poetry Collective here on KSQD, Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. You're here with me, your host, Julie Murphy, and my friend and colleague, Dion O'Reilly. 
I love how this retelling of this myth about a woman who was created for a man and her journey of becoming herself. And it's so relevant today in postmodern feminism and the hashtag Me Too movement and uh, everything that's going on. And this poem tells the story so vividly and sensually and remarkably. And then it opens up with these questions, starting with the first line, did I ask to be born? And then would I reverse time if I could? And what is left to choose? And these are questions that are relevant to every human through all time. I just, I'm just stunned by how you managed all of this uh, in, in these beautiful, gorgeous lines. It took some time. It really took some time. And um, I've come to really love her. She changes a little bit with each writing. And I think I mainly thought of her as kind of the most mythic, attenuated, um, would you say, brushstroke of a woman's life. You know, we're unformed, we become maidens. Uh, uh, there's sex, it's really often an awakening, not always, but at some point, um, and then the reality, realities of life set in, and what path does that take, but you know, I had a really funny feeling when I felt like it was mostly done, because um, Diana was in the news for some reason I couldn't think of, the late princess, and I thought, Wow, you know, she was such a fey young girl, unformed when she was dragged into the royal family, right, and recreated, mm -hmm. or they tried to recreate her. Oh, and then, yeah, her marriage wasn't so great, and she took a lover to kind of like uh, the namesake of this poem. And then it could be said there was elements of sacrifice yeah. and revenge. And of course, she was the Princess of Wales. Yeah. Not, not Welsh, but her title was the Princess of Wales. And I just thought this can fit different people's lives. I mean, myths are just a really radical extension of myth reality sometimes. And was there something that compelled you to this particular story? You know, I felt like she'd been treated um, unfairly in the legend. In the legend, the two wizards, while they're tricksters too, are heroes of Welsh uh, mythology. Her husband, I pronounce it Lou, uh, is flaxened hair, and he's a hero in the stories. She's not the malignant thing. Mm -hmm. You know, she was a victim at, through certain points of the patriarchy. And I just thought, oh, I see this a different way. Now, it turns out other people do too, but um, I just saw it a different way. And I think it's, I worried about it. I thought, wow, is this kind of 1980s, the goddess within whatever? I'm starting a book with a fairy tale. But now I'm coming across other writings, such as the young woman who wrote Circe from her Circe's Oh, point. yeah, yeah. There's, there's a title out now, Antigone, from Antigone's point of view. Um, I know I'm missing one. There's uh, Ovid's Metamorphoses from the women's point of view. 
Yeah, I guess the big breakthrough on that was Mists of Avalon, right? And I guess that <laughs> it was the 80s, yeah. I do remember that, yeah. From um, Morgana, is that her name? From Morgana's point of view in the Arthurian legend. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, right. which yeah, really which turned are... that myth on its head. Well, there's, there's also a, a collection of uh, ancient Greek myths. And I, I can't think of the author, but this came out right in the 80s, I believe. And it was the, the, the Greek classic myths, but told from a, a feminist and matriarchal point of view, not the patriarchal point of view and those are fabulous they really uh give the power back to the women you know really yeah. retell this they they actually I, I think the author actually went to older versions of the stories that were existent before they were changed into the patriarchal versions right so yeah. i think this is an important kind of um process you're carrying on kim well it's fun i mean it's a little bit dangerous you know you attach to archetypes you don't quite know where it's going to wind up that's right there's a lot of energy it, it's a good writing prompt it, you know? and your language is so gorgeous there's just so many amazing lines like the one bite of fig it just <laughs> it's just probably so dried pig yes <laughs> No fresh figs in ancient Wales. But, uh, well, that's probably uh, true, but. I really like the line, he left often, I awakened. Yeah. You were there, he left often, I awakened. Mm -hmm. A lot, a lot is said in that little line, but that stanza goes on to be interesting. He left often, I awakened to absence, a cold bed he loved. The early chase, bringing down the stag. He was good at it. And in that moment, the speaker sort of becomes prey. Yeah, right there. Yeah, we really feel that. And then the next line, the, the diction changes, listen. Like we really feel as a reader, I feel like the speaker is talking right to me. Listen, the loneliness when together became worse than when apart. And, and I feel like that is just, I, so many people have had that experience of feeling more lonely when they're with their spouse than when they're alone and on their own. And I, I think that those two lines really blow the poem open in terms of a relevance in, in the here and now and through all time. It makes her feel imprisoned. It makes yes. her feel like she has no choice and and no hope. And I do like going back to that feminist art, uh, reinterpretation of just that idea of women being formed as the, the fetishistic daydream of men. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the evolution of breaking free from that, that, that experience of being an object, really a created object. It's a little Pygmalion, I guess. I think that's that's very powerful. That idea yeah. of a perfect woman is created for this man, and she's absolutely the wrong person yeah. for him, and she is unhappy being this created person. It's also the human journey of 
becoming oneself and freeing oneself from the imprisonment of our conditioning of our cultural and familial and habitual thoughts and uh, of really truly becoming free, not by, you know, not by forcing other circumstances, but this poem describes owl just when I learned to be human. And yet she completely embraces that and finds her freedom in that. It's, it's, it's really remarkable. It's a, it's a great teaching poem for all of us. Oh, so she, takes the husband's, she takes the husband's place as the hunter. Yeah, exactly. And, and it claims everything, everything, all but teeth, fur, bone are mine. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. I looked up what owls eat. Beef for the honey, beef, beef for the, beef for the honey, beef, beef for the. Listeners, you are with the Hive Poetry Collective here on KSQD, Santa Cruz, 90.7 FM. I'm your host, Julie Murphy, and I'm here with my fellow Hive member, Deanna O'Reilly, and we're talking with Kim Scheiblauer and reading her poems from her new collection, The Visitant. Welcome back. Well, Kim, I think we should hear another poem, but we might want to jump ahead. Okay to uh, Kauai. Yes, interesting for the next one. This has a goddess in it too, <laughs> but it's really subtle and I hope, and I try to make it clear that I'm just a tourist or that the speaker in the poem is, is a tourist. Kauai, two in the morning, unaccustomed to this tumult of night breezes, murmurs, chanting women in my dreams, only a commotion of palm fronds. Lanai warms bare feet, my body loyal to another time zone. Something moves eight stories below. A white dog weaves through the sea of rental cars, circles, settles against a heated curb. Last moonlight chalks ridges of Waialele's knife-edged skirts, slips towards me, glitters the dog's eyes when she raises her head, looks up. Trade winds loosen my gown. Hikake releases its jasmine perfume. My husband sleeps. I could return, drift in beside him, place my palm lightly enough, like a flame. Thank you. That was Kim Scheiblauer reading her poem, Kauai, here on KSQD 90.7 FM on the Hive Poetry Collective. I'm your host, Julie Murphy, and we're joined today with Deanna O'Reilly. Another beautiful poem, Kim, and I, I agree, this poem is really speaking directly to the poem you just read a little while ago. We have another woman in the night um, making the moment her own. What really struck me about this poem was how sen sensory it was. 
I think you have every single sense in this poem, except for maybe taste. But it starts with sound. The sound I particularly liked was murmurs, chanting women in my dreams, only a commotion of palm fronds. And then you go to touch, the lanai warms bare feet, mm -hmm. sight again with the dog. And then you have smell, trade winds loosen my gown, Pataki releases its jasmine perfume. And then you end with a touch on the husband. Yeah, that's such a great surprise at the end. We think maybe she's gonna go back to sleep, but no. <laughs> yeah, why not? <laughs> why not? <clears throat> I also feel like this poem does something that many of your poems do is that it really evokes kind of a, a mystical moment. You know, the speaker is of the poem is in a state I can really relate to from all my traveling of being in a different time zone and in a different climate and certain kind of restlessness that comes with that. So I can really relate to that. And here she is kind of coming from these dreams that turn to be the sounds of the palm fronds, the commotion of the wind. And and then we have the dog kind of wandering into the poem, the little white dog. And that, that makes me think of the tarot and the, the fool's card. There's that little white dog with the oh fool right. that's, you know, kind of innocent and unconscious in a way. And it's the beginning of that journey of awakening. So I feel like that mystic theme is coming back into this poem. So the little white dog is a manifestation of Pele. It's uh -huh. one of her guises. And of course, the palm, like a flame, comes from her too. And uh, Waialele is a mountain. Maybe I should have thrown that in before I read. She's the goddess of the mountains. And I just feel that sometimes us Halle women get into the territory of Pele, you know, and uh, oh, kind of ruffles our feathers. Well, in the description you have of her, of her knife edge skirts, mm. it's just fabulous. It's, you know, there's all this beauty in the poem, but there's also death and danger right nearby. And uh, that makes the poem so much more interesting and lifelike. <laughs> <laughs> That combination of danger and, and beauty is really summed up in that last line. Yeah. Now, I often think of you, Kim, as the John Sales of poetry. I think I've said this to you before, because he just does such an amazing play, uh, a job of going into such a deep sense of place in his movies. They're, they're not randomly set. The setting is infused in everything that happens. Uh, in, in the plot of his movies. And I feel like you do that with your poetry. You, you invoke such a deep sense of place, whether you're writing about Hawaii or Wales or California. And can you tell us about that? Is that something you're intentionally doing or does it kind of sneak in through your unconscious? Well, my gosh, that's a really, really good question. I do know that traveling uh, and seeing the world um, is a muse for me. I, I think it's kind of 
what happens is there's a heightened state of life. There's a heightened state of, of living. You know, we're out of our routine. We're in another culture. Um, yeah, the time difference can throw us. Uh, and you have to be alert. You're not in a familiar place that, uh, that fine tunes our senses. That's how I feel anyway. And on top of that, I'm the daughter of a painter. My mother was an artist. And I think that's part of the reason why I'm pretty visual. There's a lot of imagery in my poetry. Mm -hmm. So I am looking at how is this place special unto itself? How is this place going to change me? Um, how, how, am I, how am I going to take this place back home? Mm. Uh, that's great. Oh, that really since comes you through. asked, Julie, I, I haven't thought about it that much, but I think that's what happens. Um, I love the British Isles. They revere poets. It feels really welcoming, but I've also been to other places that just put us out, to, out put me outside the, the everyday. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And would you say that there's other themes in your book? Let's let's just talk about your book for a minute. Is there an kind of an over, an arc to the book or a, a logic to the order of your poems? I hope so. <laughs> I, I hope there's a thread. Um, I feel like there's a lot of storytelling. Um, there's a great deal about marriage. It, uh, crops up in other places. Um, I was really drawn to the Welsh, which is really a Celtic idea of darkness, you know, mm -hmm. um, descent, darkness, uh, shadows as refuge. It was what, it's what attracted me to Patrick Otuma. It's something that he talks about a lot. And uh, I noticed that in more than one poem, there is what happens after great time, great pressures, um, you know, the kind of, well, like coal, the idea of coal. Um, my family were just Welsh miners and what makes coal if it's not a long, long time, mm -hmm. tremendous pressures and down in the hidden. And that comes up pretty frequently, I think. That's right. Yeah. And you have that poem is early. You have a poem about that that's early in the collection. Yeah. yeah shadow and refuge and shelter. Those words are, are peppered throughout mm -hmm. the book. Mm -hmm. And red. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Red. How'd that happen? <laughs> Red and feathers, um, russet grasses, um, a red light during fire. Yeah, I had to think about that. Why does this keep reappearing? And, you know, I mean, it's just a, the color of life, really. Yeah. Passion. Color of passion. Yeah. Yeah. Passion. Everything. Birth. Wound. Women. Women becoming women yeah mm -hmm. the speakers the speaker in many of your poems almost seems porous as if the the place is just 
sifting through the body of the speaker. I think that's a pretty astute comment that insight that you had, Julie, about the power of place in the poems. Yeah. The poems are very powerfully placed and and not just concretely, but the soul and the mystery yes. of every landscape. Yes. Very vividly. Yeah, they're they're haunting in that way. I, I think about them. I think about them a lot after I've read them. They come to me at different times. I wonder if we should move on to another poem. Let's do that. Here, another one. <laughs> You're listening to the Hive Poetry Collective on KSQD Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. I'm your host, Julie Murphy, and we're joined tonight by fellow Hive member, Dion O'Reilly. And we're uh, Zooming across town with our friend and colleague, Kim Scheiblauer, hearing her poems and talking about her forthcoming book, The Visitant. If you enjoy what you're hearing, please come and visit our website, hivepoetry.org, and you can hear podcasts from all of our previous programs. And you can find us on Facebook, The Hive Poetry on KSQD, and follow us on Twitter, at Hive Poetry. Do you want to read communion? I will read communion. This book is, uh, this book, this poem comes out of um, the fire in Santa Rosa. 2017, I stepped out on my front porch and just breathed it all in. And it was a, there was a prompt to write a list poem. So here we go. Communion, we inhale 100 miles away, cells of asphalt drive, atoms of car paint and melted tire, molecules from scalding oils, eucalyptus, valley oak, the particulates of burned vineyards, blown to us, patina of doorknobs and locks, burnished keys, curled photos, household bills, flash drives, now vapor, taste residue of ash from combustible collars, cotton or silk, laces like wicks. We receive the now invisible vanished fingerprints, so many last breaths, whatever is left light enough to rise like smoke. We breathe it all in, cannot cough it out. This is when we kneel or should char on our tongues. Thank you. That was Kim Scheiblauer reading her poem, Communion on the Hive Poetry Collective on KSQD 90.7 FM, Santa Cruz. Well, talk about the speaker being porous to the environment. He's <laughs> <laughs> taking it all in. Taking it all in. You know, uh, you talk about 
writing about an event that so many people have experienced and finding the slant angle. And uh, so to talk about fire and this incredible devastation. I mean, that was just such a horrible, horrible fire. It was just so much loss. It was unbearable. And to address it by we inhale, to open it up with we inhale. And that, that amazing list uh, of things, you know, what Tony Hoagland would call thingitude of item after item really we feel each one like a blow when we read them. And as the poem goes on, it just evokes more and more emotion until the turn, we breathe it all in, we cannot cough it out. And that's the experience I'm having by the time we get to that penultimate statement, a stanza. And, and then the, the last turn, the last, the last stanza, this is when we kneel or should char on our tongues and then it becomes like the body of christ exactly exactly it takes us right back to the title and then we i just i, I get obsessed with reading these things um you well, know, you know no sorry so go ahead i was just going to say santa rosa was one of the first fires that came down into the cities came down into the neighborhoods. I think people in the in, in not the most far-flung suburbs, but in the suburbs and the cities felt safe. Like California fire will always stay out in the woods or the fields or something. Yeah. So people died. And when we walked outside three or so years ago and we're breathing in, we knew what we were breathing in. Yeah. And it was just so important to me that it stay sacred. Yeah. Yeah. And you do such a beautiful job of doing that because it's, you know, inspiration, it's, it's spirit, it's body, it, it bridges those two different worlds. Yeah, I've been thinking about the title. <clears throat> it's so perfect for the poem. Did you have to work at that? Or did it, it come right to you? It came to me, but I had to be talked into it. I had to have some writing compatriots say go for it go for it you know I tend to be a reserved person mm -hmm. I tend to be a reserved writer there's a great sentence maybe from a poem by Trent Stromer is that a, the name uh, something like when I write my poetry it's like dragging up a string of pearls wrapped around my rib <laughs> and sometimes I have to be encouraged to just get right out there and the, some of the communions that when they put ash on their forehead, they do kiss their fingers afterwards, the ash goes into their mouths. So mm -hmm. yeah, but now I'm happy with it. It was good advice. <laughs> well, somehow you had to keep with your theme of mythology. Yes. <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> mythology and religion, oh my. Mysticism. Yeah, mysticism. the mysticism. And, and so many of your poems go there. And it really changes the poem from being about the ordinary into the extraordinary. You know, it elevates the poem, it broadens it. It's not just about stuff. It, it, it's about much more than that. 
Well, I like I like that elevation. I like to dwell in that elevation. Yeah. So, well, how, how is it for you, um, a, a self-described reserved reserved person, to be putting a book out in the world? So you would think I'd be more resistant to it, but I'm just really not. That's great. Uh, the problems that arrived to make it go so slowly were external problems. They were pretty profound. You know, I, my father was dying and died and my husband's brother, only sibling, the same. And then last year we lost both our mothers and um, yeah, it takes a chunk. It takes a bite out of your writing life, just the mm -hmm. time. And uh, and you have poems about those losses in in the book. I do. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, it was quite the experience, as most people know. And, and, and this is your first published volume of poems. How yeah. would you, you? You said something about how a book is kind of equal to a body of work. Yes, you know, when you put, when we put our work out, or when I have put my work out, it's like kind of one thing at a time in that journal or that journal. And I'm actually really bad at submitting, <laughs> you know, because I run a business too. Um, so here it is all gathered. I tortured my editors with 70 poems. And um, it's uh, distilled down to fewer and it might distill a little bit more, but, but, you, but you certainly find out, or I have certainly found out what I'm kind of obsessed with, like we discussed, mm -hmm. you know. It really is interesting that you were giving birth to a book while surrounded by so much death. You know, I like opposites though. That was handed to me, I would never choose it. Uh, Personally, I think my parents should have been allowed to live forever, right? <laughs> mm. But yeah, there was quite the juxtaposition and I did and I knew work would come out of it. And I, I thanked my father before they took him away. You know, I said, Dad, I'm gonna write about this. Thanks a million. And mm -hmm. uh, of course, as one of my poems says, then they lost him. <laughs> but they found him and you know, that made a poem. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> he, he would have been fine with it. Wait a minute, they lost your father's body? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, wow. So, you know, it's a very multitask type of deal where someone comes for the remains and then it goes to another company for the cremation and then it goes to the mortuary i don't know do you guys want this in your show i think people it was a learning experience it really was well everyone's gonna have to uh when your book comes out everyone's gonna have to purchase it right away to go in towards the middle to the end of the book to find this poem well, we are coming towards the close of the show, Kim. I was hoping you would read, uh, I'm not sure, is this the last poem, The Visitation? Visitation? 
Yes, this ends the book. So far, I mean, I'm really and, gelled in place. It is going, it is going to turn her soon. So, visitation, my last poem of my book. It says uh, March 2020. Kind of, this one keys in with the fire poem a little bit. Visitation, March 2020. A hawk weaves the infinity sign over our roofs, our heads, wings suffused by sun, tips spread, transparent, rust-colored tail, a faint ember. Just moved in, I am meeting the neighbor, six feet between us. Across the lane, hawk drops beyond the field, rides unseen vents of ascending air. We share our laments, the dwindled paycheck, how we find ourselves banned from the embrace of a cherished child, loved ones who must enter hospitals alone. It glides back, each pass closer, seems to bring the sky low with it. We silence, chastised. Perhaps we are near a nest. The hawk angles away, carries its brightness back above the sloped field. You'll see rabbits, she says, the odd gopher, snake, an owl that swoops from that fur. We turn toward the looming tree, meadow so awash with light, the gold grasses seem bent with it. That's a feeding field, she adds, just before the hawk dives. Oh, just gorgeous. Just gorgeous. Thank you so much, Kim. It was Kim Scheiblauer reading her poem, Visitation, from her forthcoming book, The Visitant, here on the Hive Poetry Collective on KSQD, Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. I've been your host, Julie Murphy, and we've been joined this evening with Dion O'Reilly. And I wanna thank you both so much for coming on the show. And Dion, it's always great to have your point of view and your humor and your wisdom and just to hang out with you. And Julie, that's really nice. Oh yeah, it's just it's fun to do shows together. It'd be great when we can actually go in the studio together. I, I've never been. I've been doing shows now for over a year and I have yet to set foot in the studio. It's crazy. Um, and Kim, thank you so much for writing these beautiful poems and doing all the work of getting them into a manuscript and out into the world. Listeners, we will let you know when the book is out sometime late this month or in February, and Kim will have a launch probably in March. Uh, so we'll post it on our website and on our Facebook page. Well, I want to thank you too for having me, for your insights and elevating my work the way you did this evening, because um, as I said earlier, I like to dwell there in that elevation. Mm. You're really generous and insightful listeners. Well, thank you, Kim. It's a, it's a wonderful world to visit. And I really can 
only encourage you greatly to rush to your local bookstore when this book comes out and get yourself a copy of it. You will not regret it. It's just full of beautiful language and imagery and um, amazing worlds to enter. Please visit our sites, thehivepoetry.org, Hive Poetry on KSQD on Facebook and at Hive Poetry on Twitter. So thanks for listening here on the Hive Poetry Collective. Take care. Be for the honey, be be for the, yeah. be for the honey, be be for the. Mm -hmm.